You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys. As always, I'm your host, Ben from DreamLot Studio. And I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. Good to be with you once again, Vadim. Even though uh, this is the second episode in a row, the audience doesn't have to know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't pull the curtain back. No, it's... no. <laughs> <laughs> we have a bit of an unusual episode today. And you might see it's kind of a, a provocative title, kind of a cheeky title. So you want to produce music for money or something like that. I don't know exactly yeah. what the title is going to be yet. But this is, uh, this is, I think, us more talking to ourselves and reflecting on our journeys trying to produce music and work on music for a living. Some of this stuff is is personal. And I think this the, the key thing for this episode is that at least from my standpoint, I'm definitely not giving anybody advice here. The, <laughs> the life decisions I've made are my own, and I'm happy to, although I don't often do this, but I'm happy in this case to talk a little bit about them and the things that I've learned kind of doing this for, well, I've been trying to make a career, quote unquote, of this for about 13 months or so, uh, but this is definitely not advice from my standpoint. What about yours? <laughs> I'd say the same. I kind of, I really kept in mind my mindset whenever I was deciding that I wanted to actually pursue this and be serious about it. Not even necessarily even making money doing producing, but just that I wanted to spend a lot of time getting really good at this. And mm. I, I tried to compare myself from that mindset, which was probably back when I was probably about 10 years ago. When I was 24 or 25 is when I first really started getting serious about this stuff or at least about the recording uh, and comparing that to what I know now. And like you said, just talking to ourselves from 10 years ago or maybe even longer and just imagining what that conversation would be like and maybe how all of the vigor of youth and doing something new that you've never done before kind of gets tempered with age and uh <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> but in in good ways though too because yeah. you can't just rely on passion alone to drive you through this the whole way like you you need the passion it's important but passion alone isn't enough to keep you going strong whenever you think that you suck or you mm. just grinding really hard you've got to find something with a bit more substance to keep you going so that's a good point. I'm glad you have that angle. Uh, that um, that that's going to be fun to discuss as well. I, I was thinking in kind of preparing for this episode that a lot of people listening to this podcast will likely fall into, or may at least, may fall into the the trap that both of us fell into, which is you know our backgrounds are both as DIY musicians. I think we both got into this from the standpoint of like. We wanted to make songs and we, we wanted to record our songs and have them sound as good as possible. And I'm curious to know this about your journey, but for me, I, I reached a point where I was so enthralled with the process <laughs> that I didn't 
want to wait to like write more music in order to like keep producing, keep recording, keep mixing. And that was what kind of drove me to like, wait a minute, I actually enjoy this more than like making songs and being an artist. And there's a lot of other parts of like, quote, I was never really an artist, but like the promoting my own music, the being a personality, I could never quite keep up with that. And so long story short, from being a DIY musician and kind of that's what kind of got me in the door. But then once I got into the process, I was like, this is actually why I'm here. I'm actually here for this process and not so much for recording my own songs. So I was thinking like people might fall into this trap as they get better, as they get more confident. And so this is going to be an interesting episode, I think, for, for the people in that category. What was your journey like there? I think we're a lot, we're similar in quite a few ways. And I think we're both really similar on this as well. Um, for me, I always kind of did want to be that person in a band, or at least I thought I, I wanted to be that person, you know, in a band, mm-hmm. writing music, just going on the road, just living that lifestyle. I thought that was for me. And I'm glad that I tried it because then I realized maybe this isn't for me as soon as I did my first tour because the highs are as high as you can possibly imagine. The unfortunate thing is that's only 5% of what it means to be on tour. And <laughs> the lows the lows can be fun too, but there is definitely a lot more downtime and a lot of time outside of just performing for people on stage and writing songs. A lot of you know, trying to figure out who wants to drive tonight four hours to the next venue and we're exhausted. A lot of those kind of, I mean, you never think of that stuff whenever you think about getting into music and setting out on that. So I'm kind of waxing poetic here too, as I'm thinking about this stuff and thinking how it's not so much the music stuff that kind of defines the role that you find, find yourself in when being somebody that creates music for a living or or at least pursuing that it's kind of the more nuanced things of your personality or how you interact with people that wind up determining those roles even more and kind of what i mean by that and and maybe more of an example so when i went on road when i went on the road with um lacy sturm from flyleaf and she's a big time artist like maybe even at the level of star i think that some people would say and I think the most interesting thing from getting to know her and and just being in the room writing music with her is I was simultaneously humbled by how creative she was and also um, not that impressed with how kind of cheesy a lot of the original ideas were that she started Mm. with. And I think it was really eye-opening to me to just kind of see how She's like a super high creative type of person who also really struggles a lot with any type of organizational skills. So she's <laughs> <laughs> she's high level creative and not good at the things that I'm good at, which is organization, analytical thinking. And I think to my analytical brain, it was interesting to me how she could kind of just freeform flow in that creative thought and be the artist and just be pure creativity and no matter what I play or what other instrumentation is provided for her, she can find a melody to sing over and it's unique and Mm. interesting and fresh. Mm. And to me, that was really interesting because the thing that I found myself always kind of getting hung up on is 
that's cool that it's original, unique, and fresh, but I want it to sound awesome. I want it to sound perfect. I want my tone to be perfect. I want the riff that I'm playing to be a perfect riff in this context. And so I couldn't keep up with her creativity as far as the writing goes because I would just get hung up on all these little issues. And I think that um, that's what wound up driving me more towards the production side of things because hmm. it it takes somebody that can fixate on those type of things to be able to listen to a kick drum for two hours to make sure that it's EQ'd the right yes. way, which is something a high creative like Lacey is never going to be able to do, but she's going to be able to write songs at a, at a much higher, um, maybe a higher creativity and definitely a higher output than I could ever do. Mm. And so it's just interesting how maybe when it comes down to the ability and our love of music, we're pretty much all the same, or at least me and her were the same, but our personalities just drove us in very different directions. And so that's always a very interesting thing for me to think about. I think, you know, the, those two types of people, I'm definitely in the same class as you, but I think that can be a very positive relationship if you're oh, yeah. one person or the other person in your band, having somebody of the kind of the opposite, right? That has that other skill set, that can be a very productive relationship in and of itself. So, but that, that's a very cool perspective. I, I've never heard you articulate it quite that way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess to, we're going to kind of go down a list. At least that's kind of how I envisioned yeah, it. Yeah, same. Me too. Rattle. Yeah, and we'll just, I'm sure we'll have things to add to each other's stories here. But um, basically, you know, for, I've mentioned this peripherally, but well, this is kind of personal, but, you know, I, I spent, a good portion of my adult life in a mechanical engineering career. And it was only about, I was producing already and mixing and I'd really done that continuously since I was a teenager and for money for the past three, four, five years. But about 13 months ago, I decided to, to make the leap and kind of quit my job and, and make a run at this. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons why. There was a couple of kind of these life things that converged on me all at the same time, and I decided that it was something I needed to do. Well, to summarize, I mean, for, for me, one of the first things I realized was that there were no thresholds to cross in life. Like, your life is just, it's time, right? It's how you spend your time. Yeah. Time is kind of the fabric of your life. And so for me, it was like, I want to spend more of my time in the day working on music. And that was kind of ultimately what hmm. drove me to make the leap. And so in that 13 months, I've definitely learned a lot. And I, I, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that there's, no, there's nothing saying that in another five years, I'll still be doing this as part of my living. Like, I'll definitely do this for the rest of my life in some capacity, but I haven't crossed a threshold of sustainability yet, I would say. Yeah. Right? I think we're both kind of in that... In that uh, realm still. But the first thing that I learned, and I'll, I want to spike this out sure. first, even though it can be kind of a conclusion, is that I had to redefine my definition of success. Okay. I had to redefine my, in doing this and being a studio, I had to redefine my definition of success from the things that I'm able to achieve to how I'm spending my time. So mm. like, you know, 
there, of course, there's like the hierarchy of needs, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have to be able to pay your bills. You have to be able to get food. You have to be able to support your family. You have to do all those things. After those things are taken care of, how do you want to spend your time? And, and the way I, you know, I think I was frustrated for a long time of like, I'm not getting enough quote requests. I'm not working with big enough bands. I don't have enough followers. The bands I produce don't have enough streams. But if you take this line of thought and you say, let's say you get a hundred streams, will you be happy? Yeah. Let's say you get a thousand. Will you be happy then? What if you get a million? Like there is no threshold here, right? How much will be enough? Yeah. And I get into the same mindset with this podcast actually, where I'm like, I look at the metrics because I care, you know, I want the podcast to grow. I want our community to grow. But I always ask myself like, how much is enough? Right. And at Mm. the end of the day, I'm making this mindset 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 shift where like if I can wake up and I have a project to work on, it's a cool project with a band that I'm excited about, man, that's what else can you really ask for as long as you can pay your bills and do all those other things? What, what do you think about that? That's great, man. I think that I've had that at different points in my life, that mentality shift and definitely about the studio yeah, just definition of success. I'll I'll be really vulnerable and just kind of open up and tell you guys some interesting things here. But, you know, my background is very similar to Vadim, where I went to school for chemistry. I had a chemistry job working for Alcoa for seven years. It was a really good job. It paid me a lot of money. Um, I was doing I was doing financially awesome to the point where I really didn't have to think I didn't have to think about my bills or when I went to a restaurant. I remember getting to the point where I never even looked at the tab because I just knew I had the money to cover it. And that's, that's like a great place to be. Cause I, <laughs> yeah. cause I had never been there in my life before, you know, like all through high school and college, like I come from a lower middle-class family. So money's always been tight and it's just nice to get to a point whenever you have enough cushion and you can just kind of open up and do some fun things. And, but I ultimately got to this point where I felt like I wasn't fulfilled and I felt like I wasn't happy in that field. I felt like there was something very meaningful about music. Almost that like I felt like music had given me so much happiness that I wanted to give that to other people as well. Hmm. In in a way that I felt like I wasn't doing with chemistry. Even though the things we were doing at Alcoa definitely had a great impact for humanity. You know, it was like we were doing good work. We were doing things to make people's lives better, but it didn't feel as uh it didn't feel like something that only i could do like i feel like my mission to the world is like i was created to be a musician in some form that nobody else could do and whether that is like you know playing with a big artist or recording a big band or just recording you know somebody else that lives on my street you know that's something that only i can do in the capacity that i could do and i felt like that was the biggest uh, realization or the, the biggest thing that helped me get over that hurdle with mm. stepping away from that job and kind of going into this. Well, first I jumped into the world of like being a touring musician full time. Right. Which was kind of really scary because we had one tour lined up with a lot of hopes, dreams and ambitions, but mm-hmm. nothing, you know, nothing as solid as having a stable nine to five that you know you're going to have for months or years. Yeah. But I definitely think that was really consequential to me to just kind of realize that 
Well, really, this company at Alcoa, they can find anybody to do this chemistry job, but I feel like only I can give back to the world musically in this specific way. Mm. So, you know, take it for what you will. I hope that helps somebody out there, but that's really what was yeah. key for me. No, that that is huge. I think about that in the context of this podcast. I'll just, just I've kind of mentioned it already, but like, I think about myself and how much joy being able to record music has brought me in my life. And mm. I think like if we could bring that to like, let's say it's 10 people. Yeah. That's great. That's an amazing thing, right? Like how <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, the next thing I had on my list was, or, or do you have, you want to, was that your number one or do you want to go into another? We one could go off of your list for sure. Yeah. Just, let's just go down your list and I'll just okay. tag on the things that you don't touch, <laughs> touch on. Okay, sure. So the next thing on my list is is relationship to gear. Um, <laughs> you know, I went through as as most of us do. If you probably heard this acronym, GAS, Gear Acquisition Syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I have I have gas. I've had bad gas for sure. <laughs> so you know, I went through that phase when I was like started building a little bit of confidence. I started understanding the difference between different microphones, and I thought like, hey, the more tools I have and the more options I have. The more I play around with these things, like the better, more attractive my studio will be to other people. And, you know, it's it's nice. It's nice to have an impressive mic locker. Like, look at these microphones. Open up your trench coat. There's yeah. 50 microphones there. And I would say, first of all, financially, you know, being on a tighter budget now, my my revenue is not nearly what it was when I was full-time in mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. So that's, of course kind of tightens your belt a little bit in one sense. But I went through kind of two phases of development with respect to gear. And I'll explain why kind of being a studio drove them. So I call it like my phase one of development after my gear acquisition syndrome phase was that I realized that having less options that are higher quality was a much better route to go. Yeah, You decrease how many options you have and make the options you have higher quality. So that was kind of my first phase was like thinning out, getting less pieces of gear, but making them good pieces of gear. And then phase two, which I'm still going through, the phase two of this development was to go deep on your gear and understanding it. So like, as opposed to having a large breadth of gear, I have 10 different microphones. I opted for depth, whereas like I have pretty much three microphones that yeah. I go to, and I have A-B tested the crap out of these microphones, and I know what they sound like, and I know the little nuances of them. And in sessions, that helps me make faster decisions, better decisions, and ultimately I get better results. That's great. I love it, man. Yeah, so I can definitely relate heavily to this. I'll even go a step farther back, though, and pull back the curtain a little bit on where the, ga- <laughs> the gas all started. <laughs> so at least for me, um, when I got in my first serious band where we were trying to make some waves, we decided that we were going to buy some gear and produce and record at least half of our first album. Uh, we decided to do all the guitars and the bass at our little home studio. That's right. And I can remember, uh, I also titled this in my um, in my notes. I titled this 
kind of uh, stopping point that I'm talking about now as give yourself room to grow. And the reason I want to call it that is because when we set out to decide in this band, you know, from, I think this was 12, 14 years ago when we were doing this, I, I was pretty young, but, um, we were all really good players. And I think we were kind of surprised with how bad the recordings were at times. And we thought that the limiting factor was the gear. Mm. And so we really spent way, way much, way much more money than we should have produce, producing this record. And I'm happy with it. And I think it sounds good, but nowadays I produce stuff in my little comfortable home studio on gear that's a fraction of the cost of the stuff that we had mm. and i'm also including the gear that we use from the professional studio to have it you know mix and mastered and and to do the drums and the vocals on like i'm confident i can do as good of a job as that whole process or better with my humble setup so think about it this way and i know that you're probably the same way vadim and maybe a lot of our listeners are too you got into this because you were first a musician. So you spent years cultivating that craft, whatever your instrument is, whether you're a guitar player or a vocalist or a drummer. You spent one year, two years, three years, 10 years honing your craft, playing every day, just getting the touch and feel and the tones just down pat. Then you decide that you want to learn how to start producing. And then you pick up a piece of recording equipment and gear and no matter how much you spend on it and you record yourself and you listen back and you think, I'm a really good musician. Why doesn't this sound good? It should sound good. It must be the gear because I know that I'm a better player than what I'm hearing because what you're hearing in your head or what you know that you could do on your instrument isn't lining up with reality whenever you record it. Well, the little trick here is that recording is a skill in and of itself and you have to spend the same amount of time or a similar amount of energy learning about it and learning how to make it work for you before you can get the same level of recordings out from, you know, your, your playing ability. And I think yeah. after spending a few years, you know, really diving into this recording, I think I found that to be true. Like I had to take a step back from practicing my instrument as much and really learn how to use microphones and mix things and, and capture the sounds correctly, um, you know, I had to become a student of recording to be able to get it right. Right, yeah, it'd be like if, if you were, uh, you said you wanna learn to play the guitar and then you bought a uh, $1,000 guitar, but then it didn't sound good. It's like, well, yeah, you haven't learned how to play guitar yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this happens yeah. so often with with people. I think most people kind of run into this and, for some people, it's worse than others, but so often we think that the solution is buying a better piece of gear. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've definitely experienced this, and I can tell you that when the times I've experienced a true step change from getting a piece of gear or from getting a plug-in were the times when I really stretched the previous piece of gear or the previous plug-in to its limit, where I really understood it yeah. And then I tried something nicer and I was like, oh, okay, now I can hear a difference. Whereas if you just went into it with the nicer piece of gear, you know, you wouldn't necessarily experience that that benefit. And now my, my criteria for whether I buy anything now, uh, it has to meet one of two criteria. <laughs> it has to be either 
something that's going to get me a better sound in a way that I can't replicate otherwise, or it has to make my workflow significantly faster. Yeah. Otherwise, like I don't need any more parametric EQs. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) I hear you. I've actually thought about this myself where I have so many different plugins and it's funny because I'm playing in a band with some people that are significantly younger than me. And I think that they're just now going through this phase that I was going through a few years ago. And so we'll all message each other with like, oh, I saw this plugin company's having a sale. And like if I, I almost run into the problem in my sessions where I have so many vendors under the vendor tab of my plugins that I'm like, I wish I would just like uninstall me half too. of these because yeah. I skip over, I skip over them like every time. Like I might use them if I'm bored one day and I'm like, oh, you know, I've never tried this plugin to see what it sounds like. You know, like the, you're, you're exactly right. The solution is have a few things that you know work well and learn them really well. Yes. And that, that ties perfectly into my next point here, which is to work faster, right? When you're, when you're just a DIY musician recording your own stuff, you can afford to take, well, as long as you want on something. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're charging people money, First of all, you want to have a budget to stick to you. Your time needs to be worth something. You've budgeted yeah. a certain amount of hours. You kind of want to meet your goal in that number of hours. Or if it's an attended session and you're charging by the hour, then it's not even your time you're playing with. You're playing with <laughs> yeah. somebody else's money. So along those lines, to, to work faster, the couple of things I've realized have, have been helping me are to learn the shortcuts of your DAW, whatever your DAW is, I found that learning the shortcuts and knowing the ins and outs of how to get things done faster has been helpful. And then the next thing is where the tie-in comes into our previous discussion, which is I reach for specific tools time and time again. So things that, again, I've, I've gone deep on understanding them. I still use a lot of like the Renaissance package from Waves, which is like 15 or 20-year-old plugins. But mm. like I know them. They do their thing really well. That's the parametric EQ I will reach for like nine times out of 10 unless I want to do something specific. Now, there is something to be said for like experimentation and trying new things for sure. But in the context of like paid work, I find that like having a smaller toolbox with reliable tools has been helpful. Yeah, this was like a super stressful for me when I first like opened the studio for business because I wasn't even sure. Well, well, think about it from even the context that you said, and I think most do-it-yourself recording engineers find themselves in this position where we spend all our free time working on this stuff, but we never keep a stopwatch to see, well, how quickly <laughs> yeah. can I do this? And so I can remember doing my first project and really stressing out about, like, I don't really even know how to budget time for doing this project. I mean, I know it's drums bass, guitar, and vocals. So if I give myself an hour for each of those, that's four hours. That can't be right. Can it really take four <laughs> can it really take four hours to record a whole song and then you realize eight hours later that you might not have enough time to get it done? Yeah. And so the way that I kind of dealt with it was I'm like a super planner and preparer, or at least I like to try to be. And so I think even before I booked that session, I like experimented around with like, how quickly can I set up my drum set and mic it up and be happy with everything just on my own so that I knew kind of like Mm. what I was getting into. And that kind of 
that helped me like feel more confident, even though like there still was a big question mark whenever the client showed up in my studio, at least like I felt like I went through the motions already of doing it. So it wasn't like it was the first time for me. And I think that even if I think I might've learned this from sports in high school, but it's a technique called visualization. And that was an example Mm of, you know, doing something and practicing it. But even just thinking through an exercise mentally and kind of walking through all the steps and imagining how you would deal with each individual thing, like that helps so much with performance because your body and brain already feel like they've gone through the motion. So I, I am a huge advocate of that kind of visualization Absolutely. technique. Absolutely. And then it um, also gives you the confidence, which is huge, right? In a, in yeah. a session where you want to instill and people you're working with that, yes, I've done this before. Yeah. Trust me, it'll sound good. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Let's see what I have next here. Uh, this is a little bit on the the business side of things, just so, some things I've I've picked up. And, and again, this kind of relates not only to the studio, but also really to even to this podcast. But I've, and to you, if you're an artist, this, I think this applies across the board is that it's better to have fewer high quality interactions than a lot of flimsy, no substance interactions mm. and build momentum that way. So, like, for me, what that's meant is every job I get. Is I'm trying to just smash out of the water. Like yeah. I'm trying to go up so far above what I've committed to that that person then leaves and they're not only satisfied with how their music sounds, but they're going to come back to me and even more powerfully, hopefully they'll tell somebody else about me. And I'm, you know, my, I'm definitely still in this phase, but my, my hope with this kind of momentum building is that you, reach a point where you have a whole network of people that are not only working with you, but they're advocates for you and yeah. they're recommending you. And I think that is, I'm, I'm surprised. I think 13 months into this, I'm surprised at how much of a grind this <laughs> is, but you do, it, it takes longer, I guess. You know, I thought, I thought I'd be able to w- make way more money my first year than I was able to make. Yeah. But at the same time, I realize now that this is this type of slow game that you have to take one interaction at a time and treat people like you would want to be treated. And then hopefully if you can stay in the game long enough, you'll build that critical mass. Man, that's really great advice. I love that. Um, two, a couple of thoughts based off of what you said. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the first one because I completely forgot the second one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I really wish that like, I, okay, before I go there, I'll just say this. I will advocate for any of you guys that are interested in this kind of stuff out there, you absolutely should try to make some money on the side doing this if you can. Whether that's doing a recording studio or even just making money from your own music, you know, and, and being like a do-it-yourself musician. And I really highly advocate for that because it teaches you so much about life. It teaches you about free markets and it teaches you about the exchange of money and really what it means and how it, how it works in modern society. And it's crazy <laughs> to me how like, yeah, we kind of teach this in school and economics, but 
not in any tangible way that means anything to anybody. And it's so interesting to me how I have such a different perspective on what money and time and value means because of doing a studio than I ever did before. And Mm. it has really helped encourage me to charge what I'm worth and not being afraid of, well, is it okay to charge this band $50 for, you know, something that I actually record for them? I mean, I'm, I don't feel like I'm that good. Can I actually charge them that? And that's like a losing attitude towards anything that you do in life, whether it's owning your own business or negotiating for a better paying job. Um, the way that you get around that is by basically just looking at the value that you're providing for people and saying, is it worth this amount of money or negotiating over a price and just saying, you know, you're not, you're not trying to trick people. You're not trying to get the most money that you can from everybody that you run into. You're, you're trying to figure out a fair exchange of funds as is this person willing to pay me this much because my work is this valuable to them. That's the basic fundamental principle of all of this. And right. it's, it's really kind of, it's been eye-opening and fun to kind of explore what that means in figuring out, you know, what am I going to charge people that come into my studio and just kind of even pitching it towards people because that, I mean, that's a tough thing about, that's a tough thing about this industry as well not just with having a studio, but the music industry in general, because I feel like art is so devalued, especially in music. It's hard, yeah. And it's kind of hard to convince people to give away their hard-earned money, or not, I shouldn't say give away, to, <laughs> to exchange their hard-earned money for, for a service. But when you can flip it around and say, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not costing you this much, you're investing this much in something that you can be proud proud of at the end of the day. I know I've ran it a lot on that thing, but No, I'm, that that's that's good. It's you're right. It's it's the calibrating on like what your value is, but also not short selling yourself because yeah. the time and money you've put into your craft is worth something. And I yeah, that's definitely something that's exciting to go through. I, on the flip side of that, that also helps you with something like gear acquisition when you're like, yeah, how many songs would I have to mix to be able to afford this piece of gear? What is this piece of gear going to do for me? Yeah. <laughs> Those are the types of discussions you start having. So yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, let's see what else I have here. Kind of along those lines, I've, I've found, we'll get back to technical stuff in a minute here. This is kind of a mishmash, but I found, you know, the entrepreneurs use this term all the time that money follows speed. And I think I've had a couple of interactions like this where being super responsive and getting stuff done ahead of when you said you were going to get it done has made impressions on people. And, you know, you could, we've all been on the other side of this paying for services and having vendors or service providers not be responsive or blow through deadlines and not give you good updates. Those things can be tough when you're juggling multiple projects, but I found that they really go a long way in building trust because 
there's a lot of people out there doing studio stuff and probably charging less than what you and I charge. But there's also a lot of nightmare stories where people don't get projects finished or people disappear off the face of the earth and you never hear from them. And just being fast and being responsible to your commitments, I found has been helpful. Yeah, I I can't agree more with that. It's that's an interesting that's an interesting way of looking at things. I think too that like going off the speed thing a little bit, you don't truly know what you're doing, I guess, until you can do it in a repeatable way that's quick. That's true. Yeah, and I think especially about, you know, that with mixing because it's really easy and it's okay when you're learning to take a long time. I think that's the thing that I was confused about when I first started with the same is true of recording. I'll just say of studio stuff in general, where the thing I kept hearing across the board was you got to be quick. You got to work quick, you know, work quick, work quick. And I kept thinking to myself, like, I'm really trying to work quick. I just, I I feel like I can't work quick. And the eye opening thing to me was, well, no, duh, you can't work quick when you're first starting because you're learning and every every single thing that you do, you're you're facing a situation you've never seen before and you're having to learn from it. But at some point after you've gotten past that learning curve, you need to start challenging yourself to be quick. And just like you said, you know, money follows speed. I like to focus not on just being the speedy studio, but knowing my stuff so that I can work quickly. That's absolutely true. And I will say that this is still part of the learning process for me and part of my sustainability issue is that I still don't mix that quickly. There's people that mix way faster than I mix, but I've found that as long as I'm realistic and I'm honest with people about, you can expect something on Thursday and then I'll get it to them on Wednesday. Well, now I've, you know, even if that mix took me two days to do, I've been honest and I've exceeded expectations, right? And, yeah, and true. I wish, you're right, I I do still run into this, Ben, where I'm like, well, I quoted this many hours and it's taking me longer. And like, you definitely can't sacrifice quality for speed. Right. Uh, Speed comes in part with experience and the things we've already talked about, but at least setting expectations and being super responsive and providing updates. If you can't make a deadline, I've just found that it's made interactions with people I've worked with more pleasant, I think, from both sides. Yeah, just being real and communicate. I mean, communication is huge. Yeah, absolutely. It's really huge. And I think people will be more willing to work with you. I mean, that's what I'm banking on, honestly. You know, like, even if I spent the rest of my life just kicking my butt into high gear and learning this stuff, I could have the biggest aspirations to say, I'm going to be better than Chris Lord Algae. I'm going to be better than Nolly at mixing. <laughs> I still wouldn't be better than them. Like, I know that, like, I'm... I'm never going to be able to put in the hours to be, well, hopefully one day as good as them, but I'm not going to be better than them. I'm going to be unique in my own way. You know, it's going to be the unique combination of how I talk to my clients, how I work with them. That's going to make the bigger difference. Like I know that they'll choose me based off of the work that I do, but I think it's the quality of the interaction that keeps people coming back. Yes, absolutely. There's, um, in my hometown, there's a, or where I live now, not my hometown, where I live now, there's a, a famous studio called Studio Four. And I, I've talked about it a little bit before, like Bob Dylan's recorded there and some some really big industry names. The guy who runs that studio is Phil Niccolo, who's 
an amazing producer. He's got a Grammy. And he says about Studio 4, even though it's an awesome studio and he's a world-renowned producer, he says, we sell the sizzle, not the steak. Hmm. That's his quote about the studio. Like, we're giving people an experience. It's more than just the finished product. And that that's, speaks to what you were just saying there. Yeah. My next point here is, is about humility. And this has been a, a tough thing for me. Not that... Uh, not a lack of humility, but when you're working on your own music, which I've done for for years and years and years, you get to a point where you think it sounds good and you're pretty happy with the decisions you've made, hopefully. There is a level of humility you need to have when you submit a mix to somebody and be prepared <laughs> for like, you know, 20 revisions. And for me, sometimes I get revisions where I'm like, this is objectively wrong, what you're asking me to do. <laughs> and just being humble enough to like work with their vision because it's it really is their vision. Like I've had cases where I've spent an hour crafting this delay effect on something <laughs> that I think is just awesome. And they're like, I don't really like that delay. Can we go back to like the original sound? And I'm like, oh man, that's that was my favorite part. So you just having like the humility to accept that it's somebody else's vision and you're enabling it has yeah. been definitely one of the things I've uh, I've been learning. <laughs> that that can be a tough thing. I do think it's really important, though. Like one way that I'll kind of navigate this in my studio with my clients is I try to never turn down an idea from a client, even mm. even if I objectively know it's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I and also I'll never make a client feel bad for suggesting because it's all about creating. Like I want. Uh, I would love to have a plethora of ideas to work from rather than a lack because people are afraid to speak up. So I feel like I'm always willing to try an idea and then be humble enough to pick the best one, whether that's my idea or the client's idea. Normally it's my that's idea. That's huge, yeah. But, um, Absolutely. <laughs> and and yeah. you never know too, like you you learn a lot from things like that. Like. Uh, it's true, yeah. People have ideas that you you would have never thought of, and then you're like, oh, now this is in my bag of tricks, right? So that's that can be very positive. Back to your example with you're talking about you know doing a mix and giving it back to a client, and then it's ripped apart. Th this happens to me often with the fading light, and I think it's also because I'm friends with everybody in the band and play in the band, so I yeah. get an extra <laughs> level of criticism. Um, yeah. One way that I try to deal with a lot of that, some of it is stuff that's just like, I don't like that, can you change it? And there's nothing you could do about that. But right. some of the suggestions I will try to take and mold in a way that I think that the song needs to go. Like oftentimes I'll get comments like, can you make the vocals more powerful here? Well, what does more powerful mean? Does that mean louder or does that mean more thickness or low end? And so I will try to, in those scenarios where I'm like, the vocals are so loud in this song. Like, I don't really want to make them louder. I think that's a wrong move, but maybe I can make them thicker or maybe I can EQ them differently so that the client can hear them in a way that sounds louder or more powerful, but it's still not kind of violating, I guess I would say what I think is true or right about how I'm working. Yeah, that's that's huge, man. I'm so glad you brought that up. This this happens to me as well, and I, I've learned to back away from this or to change my communication style. 
I used to be very, very open with people to the point where I would like explain what I had done on certain things. Yeah. But what I found was then that I was getting that level of engagement back where they would be like, can we actually like change the EQ to do this? Which is not the level of discussion I want to be having. Yeah. What I want is for you to tell me what you're going for and I can help you explain that. And then I will decide, you know, the kind of the most efficient way to go about getting you the sound you want. And so, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting balance to play there. You have to, I think, communicate at the artist's level and understand, you know, at the, at the level of their vision, I think is, is very important. I think that's yeah. what you're saying there mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Cool. Um, another point I have here is document what you did always for mm-hmm. everything. I've, I've become, actually I have it right here on my desk, Ben. I have this notebook and in this notebook, I write down my notes from every single session, what huh. microphone I used, where I put it. Uh, if I used any outboard gear, what my, you know, anything I could about the tracking session, because I found that Sometimes an artist will come back and they'll say like, whatever we did on that guitar last time, (laughs) I want to do that exactly. And I'm like, uh, let's try that. So now (laughs) having it written down, I'm like, okay, we use this microphone and you can at least get in the ballpark. And the same thing with mixes because people will come back and, you know, ask for, for things like I use outboard gear. So I'm, I've become very meticulous about writing down what I do on sessions and, um, Along those lines, I want, I want to hear your process as well after this. Along those lines, I've started doing debriefs on every project with myself where in the same notebook, I sit down after a mix has been accepted and completed. Mm-hmm. I sit down and I just think, I ask myself a couple of prompts. I ask myself, what went well on this mix? Like, what was I really happy with? And That's I really write cool. that down. And then I say, like, what did I struggle with? What were some things that I got hung up on? And I write those down as well. And I spike out any like creative solutions I came up with. And this has definitely helped me out because I'll be like, you know what? I think I ran into this before and I'll flip back to a session and I look at my notes and I'll be like, oh yeah, I forgot about this cool little side chain trick I figured out once. And like, yeah. it's, a, it's a good, I found that's a good way to like improve my game consistently. This is some way that I could definitely improve because I'm pretty much running mentally. I'm doing a lot of these same kind of things, but it, I'm keeping them all in my head. One thing that I... You might just have a better, mem- a better memory than me. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> Terrible I don't memory know. For- <laughs> One thing that I did start to do is I'm very meticulous with labeling my tracks. Because mm. when I first started, a lot of times I'd get excited about recording and i just put guitar and then <laughs> yeah. record it. And then later, I have this problem a lot where... I try to shove as many microphones on a guitar cabinet as possible, or at least I used to do that (laughs) a lot more. And literally I'd have, you know, five different microphones on a cab, but they're all labeled guitar one through five. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean anything. And when you got to go back and reproduce it, um, that can be really tricky. So I try to be as detailed as I can in the track label, like SM57 off center. 40 degree angle. Like I'll put all that stuff on the track name just so yes. uh, I, I know for certain what I'm doing. I like the idea of keeping the the notebook. I don't need to do that as much because I'm working entirely in the box. Like you have to for the outboard gear. That's a lot more definitely necessary. 
but yeah for for mix recallability especially like if i'm working on two mixes at the same time which happens then i'll have to know uh where i'm setting my gear so that is a that is a huge downside of analog yeah. gear for sure <laughs> i'm not saying that i would never go the route of analog gear but i'm happy right now to stay in the box as long as possible because yeah. it's 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 nice to be able to just switch from whatever session I want to at whatever time. Yeah, absolutely. That's for absolutely. sure. No, I love that idea yeah. of the notebook, though. Like, keep track of everything. That's a great idea. Yeah, keep track of everything, and also, like I said, do that do that debrief exercise. Oh, I will. Um, I I will say one yeah. thing that I do that's kind of similar to your debrief. I like to look through. I use templates a ton, mm -hmm. especially for recording because. I've got it down pretty good now where before a band comes in, I'll either build a template from scratch or I have some templates that I know I'll want to be using for the band. And so whenever that band leaves or maybe once a week, I'll go back through those templates or maybe not that often, once a month, I'll go back and I'll update them based on what I've learned and maybe the new ways I'm routing that things. That is awesome. That's what I need to do. Can you actually explain for people who may not be familiar with what templates are, explain what a template is and how you use it? So it's really similar to, let's just say, for example, you're sending out wedding invitations like we had to do recently. Now, we really couldn't, <laughs> we really couldn't use templates for this, but let's just say we were doing it all digitally. I could have saved a template in Microsoft Word that said, greetings, insert name Blank. here. Yeah. Right. And then... A paragraph saying thank you for attending the wedding or or we will be having the wedding on this and this date blah 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 and here's all the details sincerely and then you print that out and then sign your name and fill in the blanks everywhere so a template and recording is much the same way where the structure and the skeleton is all there um, and that might be so a lot of times I'm working with bands that don't have a drummer so I'm programming same as you you're programming or you're inserting MIDI into uh, MIDI triggers so you already have like certain drum sounds um, pre-saved and all you have to do is open a session a template session and you already have like a, a go-to setting uh, of these drums that you like you already have tones for your bass and guitar that you like and you know typically work with this style of music and then it's just minor adjustments from there instead of starting with a a blank session, importing all your triggers, picking the right ones, setting all the levels, changing the gain, changing the the um, the pitch of maybe every drum, uh, just dialing all the gain staging and the routing. Like, you know, some of that stuff can take like a half an hour or an hour just to do oh, that every for time. Sure, routing in a big session, absolutely. Like in other examples, if you're whether you're working on your own music or somebody else's, if you're working on a whole album, then yeah, having those templates is huge because you're probably like your drums are probably going to be a similar setup from song to song. So whether you're programming or doing live drums, yeah, having a template is. A huge time saver, absolutely. I need to get better about that. And I love your idea of periodically going in and refining your templates because that's what I find happens to mine is I'll I'll set up a template, but then it becomes obsolete. So then I'm not yeah. I don't use it. And um yeah, that that's that's a big one. That's okay too. Like I will say for people learning out there, like it's okay to build a template and then completely scrap it a week later. Cause that was definitely my learning process. It took me a while mm. to like even 
figure out what I wanted to do with the template or my routing. And then just one day it kind of clicked and I started realizing, oh, I'm doing these certain moves every time or I'm using these certain plugins in a chain very consistently. And that's how you decide where to leave things in a template. Because I think when I first started building one, I went overboard and I would put like 10 different plugins on every channel because... I could potentially want to use them in every session. Right. And that's that defeats the purpose. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. No, that that's huge. Yeah. That's a great one, Ben. Um, that's pretty much my list. I mean, it's I guess it it it's been a learning process for me. And like I said, I don't think I've I haven't crossed into the territory of sustainability. What I what I also say is um when I, I listen to people in this industry. You can even argue whether there is such a thing as a household name. I mean, you know, yeah. think about how many producers the the average musician can can name. It's probably not that many. Um, most people who are not household producer names, you will find hustle in multiple ways. They all kind of wear multiple hats, and uh, that's been kind of eye opening for me as well. Is like it's a competitive industry, and I'm okay with like earning money through part-time jobs and doing what I have to do as long as I get to spend a lot of time working with people on making music um, and kind of letting myself be happy with that and not looking so much for yeah the next threshold to cross, right? I think is it's definitely a work in progress. And like I said, I don't know if five years from now I'll still be in business, but I know five years from now I'll still be making music in some fashion or another. <laughs> If I still have any life in me. What you're exactly talking about there is where the redefining success really kind of kicked in for me big time. Because to go back to my earlier example, so I quit my Alcoa job to go tour full time. Well, touring full time kind of became really touring only a third of the year and then having to work these odd end jobs and Uber and Lyft to kind of make ends meet in the off time. And one of the things I realized was that I had a little bit of a pride issue with, well, I left my job to become a full-time musician. I'm finally doing this thing. Not, not everybody gets a chance to do, and I'm doing it for a living. But the problem was, is that it like, wasn't sustainable what I was doing. Mm. And it took a lot of humility for me to have to say, because at the same time I realized that, all right, I'm not going to be able to make enough money just touring full-time, I've got to do something else. And that's really what kind of gave me the extra push I needed to open my studio to the public and charging clients that I didn't know money in exchange to try to make a living for that because that was a really scary, that was a really scary jump for me um, because before that it was just a hobby. So all through that time, I was kind of dealing with this pride issue of I feel like I'm a failure if I have to go back to doing something that's not music mm. because I made this commitment. I'm jumping into this and I'm not looking back now. I don't care how much it hurts. I'm going to make it work. And if I can't make it work, then I'm either a failure. Or I didn't try hard enough. Yeah. And the reality is, is like, that's really up to your definition of success. Right. And I decided for myself that, you know what? I need to take a step back and I need to take a day job so that I can get my feet underneath me a little bit. And that way I can continue honing my craft, but then I'm not forced to have to 
work with anybody who, you know, in a desperate way is just willing to like exchange, you know, my studio time for money. Instead, I can actually work with people on projects that I like and enjoy and still have an enjoy an enjoyable life on top of it. And so I think that's kind of where my definition as far as the music stuff has changed a lot where before I felt like, well, I'm not a successful musician unless I'm doing this, unless this is my day job and this is what right. I'm paying the bills with. And instead I turned it into, well, what I feel is successful is what fulfills me. And I can still do that. I can still be fulfilled with what I'm doing musically, whether or not I'm making my living full-time doing music or part-time or yes. no matter what I do. And I think that's a really, that was a huge thing for me. And I think it can be a huge thing for other people to not force yourself or peg yourself into like a certain type of uh, position that you feel like you need to be in. Because I, I even know, and I won't say names, but there's one pretty famous producer out there that I can remember seeing in an interview talking about he got to where he was because he hustled so hard, but he's not sure that it's worth it because he doesn't have any friends and, <laughs> and he's so burnt out. He can't like, Oh my God. He can't sad. like, it, it's really sad. And so like, it's eye opening to just kind of see that, you know, music should be fun. It shouldn't be just a, and art should be fun and should be inspiring and creative and fun. And it's not worth it to me to give up all of that in my life just to make it work. That's that's a huge realization. And I think that that does tie back nicely to our first point, which is, you know, redefining success. I mean, for me, what ended up happening was I, I did end up staying part-time in, in mechanical engineering. I was very fortunate that my, my company was flexible enough to suggest that. And for me, it was a question of like, well, sure, I could work in audio doing all kinds of odds and ends. I could edit audio books. I can do all these different things and kind of hustle to get by. Or I could do this other thing, work part-time. What you said is you have to be a bit humble because you have to accept the fact that you are supporting yourself through a means other than music. So does that mean you're a professional musician? Does that mean you're a professional producer? I honestly don't know, but does that matter, right? Because at the end of the day, like for me, I've, my hours have, I basically flipped my script where I used to spend 50 hours a week in a non-music job, 20 hours a week in a music job, and I flipped that ratio. And so when I look at that, I was kind of said like, that, that's good. That's what I wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm spending my time in a way that's more enjoyable. Does it really matter whether I'm a professional A or a professional B? No, ultimately it doesn't, but it's still a learning process for sure. Yeah. And it's fun. I, I think it's, I think it's a privilege to be able to make, to make money doing something we love so much. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the real truth of it because really only in the 20th century has that even been an option. So it's a cool time. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool time to be alive. And I'm that glad that I have the, the chance to do what we're doing. And, um, yeah, Absolutely, it's been, man. it's been fun. And like, you know, maybe we can do another one of these episodes 10 years from now and see the advice that, you know, and how that's changed, you know, yeah, in that amount of time. I think, we, 
I think we should do one periodically because this is still, you know, we're, we're both learning a lot. You and I talk, we have a lot of these types of discussions offline and we thought it would be cool to kind of do a podcast about it and just let people in on what's going on behind the scenes in our lives. And um, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it. I'm enjoying going through this process with you and I, I learn a lot from you. Actually, Ben, I, I haven't told you this yet, but I want to do a year-end recap. We started this podcast mm. in January of... 2020. What's the January day? Yeah, man. So we're coming up on a year, and I think it'd be cool to do a year and recap on things like, you know, how um, what we've learned over this over the year, what the biggest like changes are in our workflow. This is kind of like what we did today, but I've there's a couple of things that I've learned from you on this podcast <laughs> that have like changed changed my workflow. Hmm. Um, and so it'd be fun to do a year recap and also. I'm also thinking about maybe revisiting gear for the coming year. Like we did a gear episode. Well, it was episode yeah. two and three were our gear episodes. And it would be fun to do a recap and talk about like what's changed and what's new and exciting out there for people. Yeah, I'd love that. That would be awesome. Cool, man. Well, good episode. This was fun to to uh, reflect with you live because this is, again, usually the type of discussion discussions you and I have either before or after <laughs> yeah, it's recording. True. Uh, so it's, it's true fun to do it uh, on an episode. Yeah, man, it's been great, and uh, you know, been happy to be on this journey with you. It's made it's made it a lot more fun, you know. Instead of just living in my audio cave, yeah, I get to spend it with somebody else too. So that's cool. Yes, that is nice. You're right. That's absolutely nice. Is to get out and get some perspective from from other people trying to do something similar, which is hopefully what people get out of our community. So if you're not exactly. on there, we've had some. People sharing music this past week, which is awesome. We love hearing uh, the stuff you guys are coming up with and giving some feedback. And keep that up. And if you're not in the Facebook group already, you can join it. Just go to Facebook and uh, search for DIY Recording Guys. We'll see you there. Sounds good, man. And until next time, we remind you guys to check yourselves. Before you wreck yourselves. Have a good one. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com and you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com and finally join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording just search for DIY recording guys on Facebook thank you so much for listening and for your continued support See you next week.